Good evening, and welcome to the John F. Kennedy Jr. Forum. I'm Maggie Williams. I'm the director of the Institute of Politics here at Harvard. Tonight, we take up the fascinating topic, Journalism is Not a Crime, moderated by a great American political journalist, Candy Crowley. For nearly three decades, Americans and audiences worldwide have looked to Candy for coverage of politics that is thorough, incisive, insightful, objective, revealing, and tough, but honest. Over her career, she has traversed the journalistic world, as you can read in tonight's forum program. She has covered every major US political figure in recent memory, including every president since Jimmy Carter, as well as countless governors and members of both the House and the Senate. She's worked in all 50 states and around the globe, covering not only politics, but many historical events. She has won more awards for excellence in journalism, both for her network employers and for herself, than I have time to reel off tonight. If you are interviewed by Candy, you, have, you can count on several things. Intense questioning, intellectual integrity, studied knowledge of every issue, and relentless probing until she gets the truth. We are very, very proud to have her as an IOP fellow this semester, and I am honored to introduce her. She will be our moderator this evening. Thank you, Maggie. Goodness. I'm just going to really briefly inter introduce these two gentlemen because I think they need a bit of a setup for those of you who don't uh, don't know why they're here together. Uh, to my left is Maziar Bakari, uh, a journalist, a filmmaker, uh, and next to him is Tim Greenberg, who is the executive producer of The Daily Show. So, you know, the first question is, and they're gonna, why are they together? So I'm gonna have Tim set up something from The Daily Show for you all to see so we can then move the conversation along. Gotcha, I think we're starting with a clip from The Daily Show to get you all in the mood. Uh, this is a clip from a short series we did on Iran, where we, we traveled to Iran right before uh, the elections back in 2009, was it? Um, and uh, our point was basically to just present the country to Americans, uh, and one of the uh, people that we went to interview was Maziar, and so that's the basics of it. The Islamic Republic of Iran, a nation in upheaval, a powder keg waiting to explode. But as we empathize with these courageous souls who are risking their lives to take a stand for democracy in the face of oppression, let us not forget, these people are evil. But just what is it that makes them so evil? I hadn't signed up for Twitter, so the only way to find out was to go and see for myself. As I touched down at Khomeini Airport on my 36th birthday, I was completely alone. No American embassy, no alcohol, not even exposed ankles to leer at. I have a wife and children. Please don't hurt me. Even leaving the hotel presented potential risk. Red wire, blue wire. But I assured my producer, Tim Greenberg, that as long as he was with me, there was nothing to fear. First up, I made contact with my translator, Mahmoud. We headed to a coffee shop off Azadi Square for a clandestine meeting with Iranian journalist Maziar Bahari. I was told he'd go by the codename Pistachio, and I would recognize him by... Oh. I didn't see you there. I asked him the question on every Westerner's mind. Why was his country so terrifying? In one word, misunderstanding. The two sides, they don't understand each other. They don't know the values of the other side. They don't know how to talk to the other side. And actually, I've written about that for Newsweek magazine several times. 
Yeah, I didn't understand a word of that. Mahmoud, can you translate this for me, please? Yes, he's saying that he's written about this problem that you have in Music Magazine, and you can read about it. Okay. What did he say? He said that I said I've written about it for Newsweek magazine several times. I'm going to need someone who speaks English. The one thing I could understand was that this entire country is evil. The first thing to know about Iran is that it's not evil. The Iranians and Americans, they have much more in common than they have uh, difference. What do I have in common with you? Who is the number one enemy of the United States? Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda is also the number one enemy of Iran. According to Al-Qaeda members, any Shia, any Iranian has to be killed. And if you kill an Iranian, you would go to heaven and you will have 72 virgins. Enough of his Western-educated Newsweek doublespeak. <laughs> so that's a portion of um, the first one you aired. Was yeah. this the first one? Uh, clearly aimed at, poke, to me, poking fun of Americans' views of Iran. But something went amiss after this was aired. Right, so we were there right before the uh, elections where it seemed like uh, Mousavi, who was a more liberal candidate, um, was going to win. And in fact, when we were there, uh, the mood, at least where we were, was you know every place you'd go you'd see these green ribbons which was the symbol of his uh, campaign, and uh, you know a lot of young people would be driving around with their green ribbons on their wrists and you know hanging off their their cars and it seemed like it was really like a time where things were going to change like there was a desire for change for a more for a more liberal society and we went there right before the election thinking like great we'll cover this and this would be a time for us to sort of introduce America to Iran. And then it turned out that that didn't happen. In fact, the exact opposite happened, um, where the powers that be, Ahmadinejad, arguably stole the election, and things suddenly clamped down. So. And there were street demonstrations and uh, government forces cracking down, uh, killed some people. You, as a reporter, Mizari, um, were uh, following this. Um, tell us what happened the day after the election. Take it from there into uh, your imprisonment? Well, basically what happened, as Tim said, uh, for a period of two or three months, I believe, about uh, three months, people were in a euphoric mood. People thought that they will have someone who is not Ahmadinejad. It really did not matter that much who was that person, but they really did not want to have Ahmadinejad. I mean, to put things in context, if you have Khamenei as the supreme leader, who has the ultimate power, and Ahmadinejad as the president, these are two people who Iranians, many Iranians, are just ashamed of. It's as if like you have, I don't know, Donald Trump and Kim Kardashian as you know, president <laughs> and vice president. Maybe I just gave him an idea, maybe, yeah. <laughs> and you really want to get rid of Kim Kardashian, because you say, well, Donald Trump is the supreme leader. I don't, uh, you know, he's not, he's untouchable, but untouchable, but uh, let's get rid of his Kim Kardashian. So people wanted to change Ahmadinejad, and that's why they voted for Musavi, who was not a really, a, let's say, Jeffersonian Democrat. He was not uh, someone who believed in democracy. He was the prime minister of Iran in the 1980s, during the time of Ayatollah Khomeini. Many atrocities had happened during the time of Musavi, but he was not Ahmadinejad. And he was talking about rapprochement, he was talking about opening up the space a little bit. So people were kind of euphoric. So when uh, Tim and Jason came to Iran, which was, I think it was two or three weeks before the election? Yeah, right, yeah. we left just uh, about a week week before, I think, exactly. a few days People before. were uh, uh, euphoric, and the government, we did not know what was going on. The government somehow was allowing many journalists to come to Iran. I think about 200 visas were issued, so every major news organization was in Iran, and they were filming this. And some of them were just getting ahead of themselves, calling this a green revolution rather than a green movement, because Musavi was not going to have a revolution. <clears throat> so the election happened and everyone, based on 
all these secret uh, surveys that, was, uh, that were carried out by the Ministry of Intelligence, and I had seen one of them. I'd reported it for Newsweek uh, before the election. Everyone thought uh, Musavi was going to win. But not even the day after the election. On the night of the election, they announced that Ahmadinejad is ahead by seven, eight million margin. And that was, I could, the next morning, it was as if a dark cloud was over Tehran, as if there was a change of mood. It was a dramatic change. So for a couple of days, people did not know what to do. So the election was on Friday, then on Saturday and Sunday, people were just thinking what to do. On Monday, they came to the streets. And people said that we're going to the streets. The organizer said, uh, we're asking people to come to the streets and have a demonstration of silence. And I thought maybe, I don't know, 10,000, 15,000 people come, chant a little bit, uh, chant a few slogans, and then go back home or maybe get beaten up. And I had a meeting around 3 o'clock. I got to the demonstrations at 5, and I could not hear anything. So I thought I was right. It was like 10 or 15,000. But I went to the Revolution Street, which is the main uh, street in Tehran. And I was in, on that street in 1979 as a young boy uh, during the Iranian Revolution, where 3 million people filled the Revolution Street. And it was the same scene repeated 30 years later that millions of people, and according to the city of Tehran statistics, it was between 2.2 to 2.5 million people were marching silently asking for the votes to, to get back their votes. That repeated for a few days, so I reported it. <clears throat> and the, there was an attack against a paramilitary base. That was an anomaly, really, and I reported on that, and then, on a and I'm Friday, not sure we made it clear. Yeah. He was working for Newsweek at the time. I was working for Newsweek and election. Channel 4 News, which is a, a major um, news program in the UK. Uh, so uh, then Khamenei, the Supreme Leader, uh, he came to the uh, Friday uh, prayer ceremonies, and he said that people have to go back home. Otherwise, they will be responsible for the bloodshed. So on Saturday, there was a massive uh, crackdown. They uh, beat up, uh, there were like, thousands of guards, thousands, uh, practically like they called them ninjas because they were uh, uh, dressed in dark. They had these black shields. They had, uh, we had not seen these people. We did not know where they were coming from. And they were beating up young women, children, and women. It was horrible. And I saw some of the most horrible scenes that I've seen in my life on that day, on Saturday the 19th, I believe, uh, the, of June. And I've been working in Africa, in Afghanistan, Iraq. So it was quite dramatic. And the, they ended with the pictures of Neda al-Sultan, the woman who was shot uh, in the head. And we saw the dramatic pictures of her blood flowing from her nose and mouth. And then I went to sleep. And the next morning, uh, a few men in Civilian clothes came to my house, to my mother's house. I was staying with my mother in Tehran, and they arrested me and took me to Edin Prison. So the story, I don't know how many of you have seen, there is a, a book out uh, that you've written, um, now, called, now entitled Rosewater, uh, a film directed by John Stewart called Rosewater, which is, this, really it's a, it's a family story. Uh, in a lot of ways, yeah. um, it, but it is the story um, of that imprisonment for 118 days. So uh, one of the things I've been curious about, and now the link here is that when you were being interrogated, they played the clip from The Daily Show. Sure. When I was arrested, uh, they took me to the interrogation room, and within a few minutes, my interrogator told me that you're here for espionage. And I asked him politely, so do you mind telling me who I was spying for? And he said, four organizations, CIA, Israeli Mossad, British MI6, and Newsweek. And I said, do you mean Newsweek magazine? And he said, yes, your magazine, as a quote-unquote magazine, 
it's part of the, it's common, and he said it's common knowledge that it's part of the intelligence organization, uh, American intelligence apparatus. And it was, I mean, I wish Bill Burns was here because I was in touch with someone named Nicholas Bergruen, who is a, who's an industrialist, and I, I, had, I had interviewed him. So his name is Nicholas Bergruen. And they thought that it's Nicholas Burns and Nick Burns, sorry, Nick Burns. Nick Burns, yeah, Bill Burns was someone else, yeah. Nick Burns, uh, and they thought that uh, I was in touch with Nick Burns. And Nick Burns had just written an op-ed, I think, in Newsweek. So they said that you were in touch with Nick Burns, who was a government official. That proves that you're working for the CIA because Nick Burns is part of the CIA. So it was just all these uh, conspiracy theories coming together. and they. And so they were charging me with espionage, and in the absence of any real evidence, because I was not a spy, they had to bring forward ridiculous evidence, including my appearance on The Daily Show. So, uh, Jason, Which they took, or said they took seriously. Yes, that because he looks like a spy, he says that I'm a spy, and I think, well, they said he tastes like a spy, and he's a spy then, yeah. So. So, Jim, you're back in the States by this time. Right. When was your first knowledge? Well, things started to arrest. happen. And uh, I think some of the other people that we had interviewed were, had been arrested at that point. Because there's one email, and I went back to check this to make sure that he told us to do this. But there was other parts of that interview where he spoke, uh, you know, much more aggressively against Ahmadinejad and against the regime. And I, we just, I just wrote an email to say like, hey, are you okay? And do you, what do you want us to do with this thing? And he said, please air it. In fact, go ahead and air these even, you know, sort of more difficult remarks, um, which didn't really fit our piece. But so we, we proceeded and then, I don't know how exactly we found out. I think just from the press found out that he'd been arrested too at that point. Yeah. And, um, for us, it was extremely uncomfortable because even though people say we're journalists, we're really not. Like we, The Daily Show, we are not journalists. We're not. <laughs> and uh, it was personally uncomfortable just that my world of, you know, silly comedy had intersected reality in a way that I was completely unprepared for. The entire time I felt like I am in over my head. I should not, I should not be involved in this. Um, and I think that was one of the striking things for me was that we're making jokes, you know. We're, we're, we thought we were doing something that was safe and silly, and it turns out there's not that much separation between that safe, silly world that we live in and yet a very much darker side that I've seen in the movies, you know. I've seen on TV, I know it exists, but the fact that it exists with somebody I know and that something we're doing is being used in, a, you know, literally as a form of torture was just way beyond. <laughs> And, and there was, I mean, tell them a, a bit, there was torture over these 118 days. Uh, there were other pieces of evidence that were brought up uh, to, to prove that you were a spy for uh, America. Uh, talk a little bit about the process that you went through. And we should say, first of all, that your father was also imprisoned during the Shah um, of Iran regime. In the 1950s, And yeah. his sister was also imprisoned in the next regime for being a member of the yes, opposition ages, party. Yes. Uh, so uh, you had, and, and it's very effective in the film, I thought, um, conversations in your head with your dad about what should I do here. Talk a little bit about your evolution of how you thought you would behave and eventually what happened. Well, growing up in a political family, having uh, witnessed a revolution and a war, somehow prepared me for getting arrested. And I had been arrested a couple of times when I was uh, younger in my teenage years, but just for a day or for three, four days. Actually, the uh, second time I got arrested was because I was having coffee with my girlfriend in a coffee shop. It's very close to the coffee shop you filmed. Uh, in Tehran, I was 16 or 17, I believe, and they arrested everyone in that coffee shop, and they took me to uh, the most dangerous prison in Tehran at that time for common criminals, not Evin. So I was in prison with, at the age of 17, my crime was having a coffee with a girl, and they said that, no, it is disturbing public morality, your crime is. 
So I was in the, in the communal cell and I asked different people, so what is your crime? He said, murder. And another person, rape. <laughs> you know, so I was there with like 30, 35 uh, uh, common criminals, dangerous criminals. There were a couple of other people who were arrested in a party as well. So I thought maybe I was a bit prepared. But you cannot really be prepared for something as dark and something as ridiculous as this. I mean, um, Tim may feel guilty, but may have felt guilty about what happened uh, in Iran, but you cannot really prepare yourself for something. I was not prepared. I knew that there are many stupid people in Iran. There are many peop stupid people who are in the regime in Iran and they don't have any sense of humor, but until I got there and I witnessed it firsthand, I could not uh, believe it. And during those 118 days, because I was most, I was 107 days in solitary confinement, I did not uh, get any new information, but my information about the Revolutionary Guards, about the regime, the, uh, the paranoia, really deepened, I understood how much they hated Jews, for example. I, uh, and I realized that how much they regard Israel with awe and envy at the same time, hatred. So I went through a different, uh, different periods during my uh, interrogation. As I said, in the beginning they charged me with espionage, so there were beatings, there was psychological torture mostly, uh, telling me that. And you know, this isolation, this solitary confinement, it's the worst kind of torture because you're deprived of all your senses. You cannot touch anything except for the walls. You don't see anything except for the walls around. You don't hear anything. And that was the worst kind of torture. And sometimes, actually, I, I really wish that I could get out of the solitary confinement and I could go to the interrogation room to be beaten a little bit so I have some human contact. And then when the espionage period finished after a couple of months, I believe, they started to ask me about my uh, private life and especially my sex life, that how many uh, people I slept with, how many times, how much did I pay them. <laughs> it was just, uh, uh, it was getting uh, from ridiculous to more ridiculous. Yeah, it, was a, it was basically a dark comedy. And, you know, the best, uh, I think, uh, comedies in the world that I've seen come from dictatorships or are about people who take themselves seriously. You know, even in the terms of The Daily Show, your jokes about uh, Mitt Romney were funny somehow, but about Donald Trump is really funny because he takes himself much more seriously than uh, Mitt Romney. And it was, when I was in prison and when I was being interrogated, my interrogator somehow became my muse because uh, to start with, when I got into prison, I thought I'm coming out in 10 days and I will write an article for Newsweek called 10 Days in an Iranian Jail. <laughs> then 10 days became 20 days and 30 days, so I decided to write a book. And every time he was saying something stupid or he was making a presumption about my life or about life in the West, I was taking a mental note that, okay, that will mm -hmm. end up in a book. <laughs> so, <laughs> and I was just uh, trying to, you know, add color to it as well. I was asking him a question. And basically, he, he did not have any other human contact besides me as well, because he spent all his time in the interrogation room. He was tired of talking to uh, his buddies, other revolutionary guards. So sometimes he was confiding, uh, confiding in me. He was telling me about his personal life. I could hear his conversations with his wife. Even sometimes when he was beating me, he was uh, talking to his wife. I remember one day he was holding my ear in his uh, hand and he was just twisting my ears and it was really, really painful. Then his uh, phone rang and he kept on twisting my ear and while he was talking on the phone, I was like, oh, could you just let go of my ear while you're talking? <laughs> and then he hit my head and he said, I'm talking on the phone, be quiet. <laughs> and it was just uh, really ridiculous. Really, and it makes it actually probably even more dangerous because there's no way, there's no rationale here. Exactly. Like you're dealing with this, you don't know how to play in, as we talked about, the theater of the absurd. Exactly, I mean, it is some sort of spectacle. It is multi-layered, and I'm trying to, I try to talk about it in the book as well, that these forced confessions that they have, this 
whole uh, ceremony around torture and beating and getting confession, it has become some sort of amusement for the people within the regime and people uh, within the Revolutionary Guards and the intelligence agencies, especially because ordinary Iranians do not uh, believe in the forced confessions or people appearing on uh, television confessing against themselves. But uh, when you read the uh, articles by people close to the Revolutionary Guards or hardliners in Iran, you see that they really relish this. And they are perfecting it. It's a, it has better lighting now. It has better staging. Now they put flowers next to people when they want to confess them against themselves. They put books. You know, the books can be more intellectual now. It used to be just the Quran and a few religious books. Now it's Tolstoy and Dostoevsky, and you know. So it is becoming it's almost torture is sport. Exactly, it's torture spectacle, basically torture as a spectacle and. One of the other things that I <coughs> led to my arrest among all these different journalists who was in Iran was this Islamic notion that they believe in that it is uh, making an example of someone. Uh, in Iran, we have many public hangings now. And when, they, when you ask the government official why you hang people in public, they say that we want to make an example of these people. They call them drug uh, smugglers. So I was arrested to make an example of a journalist, of a filmmaker, so they could scare a large group of people. Well, We're going to, there's so much more to this story, which I hope you will ask about both these uh, gentlemen. There are four um, microphones here for your questions. There's one up here, one up here, one here, and one there. We only ask that you tell us who you are, keep your question short, and make sure it's a question. So to hear the end of the story, I'm counting on you all uh, to ask those questions. Go ahead up here. Hi. I'm sorry to let you down. I'm not going to ask about the rest of the story. <laughs> um, you mentioned earlier that you didn't think you were journalists. Yeah. But I wanted to know your opinion about what you thought of recent political shows such as Stephen Colbert's John Stewart's and now John Oliver's and the effect that they have on public opinion, which I think is, is huge. And what do you think about that? And how is that changing? the political and media landscape of today? Um, well, I mean, didn't or everyone else, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't seem to help much in this case, uh, either directly or indirectly, although later he got a movie made of his life, so I suppose that was something. <laughs> um, uh, I mean, I'll just answer briefly, because I don't know, know if that's necessarily what you're talking about, but uh, I, I think it reflects public opinion. I don't know that it influences it so much. Maybe there's particular stories or something that, that, do, um, that do get highlighted that you didn't otherwise know about. Um, but like, for example, I was reading an article about the John Oliver effect recently, and you know, this has been said about The Daily Show, about all the things that had changed because of him. There's really only one or two things that might have changed. It was really that he was reporting on things that were in the process of changing anyway. So I think it's more of a reflection than I think a cause of change. That's my opinion. Hi, go ahead, don't forget to tell us your name. Uh, I'm Yasmin Raji, I'm a student here at the Kennedy School, and would love to hear your thoughts on the Iran deal. On uh, the Iran deal, well, thank you for asking me. Uh, I support the Iran deal. I have tried to read the <laughs> agreement. It is very complicated, and I know most of the people who have opinions about the deal, they do not understand uh, much of what's said, because it's a very technical document. But I support the deal uh, because I just look at the alternative, uh, which would be another war in the Middle East, uh, another invasion of a Muslim country. And that would definitely will affect and harm America and many other countries, but especially it will harm Iranians because it would militarize the space, this, uh, the situation inside Iran and while Iranians right now have some space to express themselves, to gather information, share information, if there is a military attack, if there is a military, uh, <clears throat> even a threat of a military attack, then it allows uh, people in, within the Revolutionary Guards, this secret government, this parallel government that took over the country after the uh, 2009 elections, 
they will take over again and they will get rid of this, even this little space that we have in Iran now. So uh, I was just telling Candy uh, earlier that I've been in a very difficult situation since I've come out of prison in 2009, because on one hand, I have to, it's, I feel that it's my duty to talk about the uh, situation in Iran, the human rights abuses and the atrocities that the regime is committing. But at the same time, I do not want to uh, provide any uh, reasons for warmongers and people who went to war in Iraq and, you know, who think that, who, or who say that uh, going to war with Iran will solve the situation and will bring peace and security uh, to Iran the same way that we did in Iraq and Libya. Which I guess, and Iranians also, they look at the neighborhood as well. And they, uh, Iraq, Libya, Afghanistan, these are not good role models that they want to emulate. My name is uh, Ben, and I'm a Harvard alum. Um, there's been a number of examples of successful revolutions. Of course, in America, it was Americans that chose to have a revolution. With regards to Iran, uh, to have a successful, peaceful, democratic revolution, does it inherently have to be from the inside out, or are there anything that external forces can happen to help support uh, a better process? I think external forces can help uh, the situation in Iran. First of all, they should not uh, invade the country. That's, that's the first thing that they should do. But also, they have to find out what is uh, the situation inside the country and what do the Iranians need in order to bring about a peaceful change in the country. I've been talking to different governments, uh, different government officials, asking them to create some sort of satellite internet in Iran, because one of the ways that you can bring peaceful change to Iran is to by allowing different Iranians to communicate with each other, to communicate with the rest of the world, to uh, share information with, the, with themselves and the rest of the world, and while the Iranian government is in charge of the internet and the bandwidth, it is very difficult. It is still possible, but it is very difficult. But if there is a satellite internet, for example, that the foreigners can uh, provide to Iranians, that will be a positive help. It's not military attack. And also when you think about the, you, you do a cost benefit, benefit analysis, how much is a military ship cost and how much satellite uh, uh, internet cost, you know. I think those kind of help, yes, they can be provided to people inside Iran. And to tell the truth, Iranians don't think about revolution anymore because they had a revolution 36 years ago. They've been regretting it since uh, maybe two, three years after the revolution. And they are reminded every day by the government that they had a revolution 36 years ago. So it's uh, it's something that they do. It's a historical mistake that they do not want to repeat. I'm going to go up here next, but I just want to uh, interject here um, because journalism obviously is one of my passions here, and that is your case did get publicity. Yeah. Um, Hillary Clinton talked about it, about uh, the show trials, talked about uh, the unfairness of the imprisonment, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and there were a number, and you had journalist friends who, uh, among them Fareed Zakaria from the CNN, who was sort of constantly on the case. Um, did, the, did the Daily Show feel that there needed to be some help here um, in terms of trying to get um, him released? Yeah, well, we uh, nothing directly other than I think a couple of times we featured uh, people who were speaking about his case as, uh, as interviewees. Um, but again, in terms of Anything beyond that, you know, um, we were sort of coordinating with the people who were taking more of the lead, which were, I mean, starting with his wife, but uh, various people who were helping to kind of coordinate that whole process. Oh, and we left out that part of the story, ladies. His wife was pregnant while this was going on. Um, she was, uh, when you left, five months pregnant when you she left for two months? Three months pregnant? Three months then, pregnant. Yeah, so. Um, so that's a part of the story. Um, and I'm going to ask you at some point about what you think is similar to this question, what you think would be helpful for those who are still there and maybe don't get uh, the kind sure. of publicity and pressure up here. 
Yeah, speaking of which, uh, Jim Gleason, by the way, uh, speaking of which, I'm wondering, I'm very sorry about your excruciating experience in jail, but I'm wondering whether it gave you greater sympathy for the thousands of Palestinian political prisoners in Israel who are held there without uh, charge, uh, tortured, and uh, when they go on hunger, hunger strikes, they're force-fed against every type of uh, human rights convention imaginable, whether you can extend your own experience uh, to neighboring countries and, and around the world, because uh, these are the kind of stories, unlike yours, that never get featured on the Daily Show or in Newsweek. Well, uh, yes, there are many atrocities going on in the world, and of course in Palestine, in China, in Russia, in Egypt, and some of these countries are Western allies, some of them are anti-Western, atrocities going on all around the world, and going back to Candy's question, I was really lucky that I was working for Newsweek, and I had been working with different Western organizations for many years, so I had friends all around the world, I had an amazing campaign launch for me when President of Iran came to the United Nations in, the, in September 2009. Newsweek made sure that every diplomat who, made, uh, who met Iranian officials raised my case, and as we see in um, WikiLeaks document, even uh, Bill Burns, who uh, was Under Secretary of State, and he met the Iranians for the first time in Geneva in 2009, talked about my case. And unfortunately, most of my Iranian colleagues and most of my colleagues all around the world, they are not as lucky. Most of them are not working for media organizations. Most of them are freelancers. Many of them are social media journalists who have become journalists with the advent of uh, Facebook and Twitter and they do not enjoy the same support. So that's why we started this Journalism is Not a Crime campaign, journalismisnotacrime.com, which is, uh, for now, it's for the Iranians to provide them with legal help and psychological help and to give, uh, to put a name, to put a, a face on the names and n names to the numbers and talk about these people, because when you think, hear about uh, what, when you say thousands of Palestinians or we say that hundreds of Russian journalists or Chinese journalists, these are not numbers. These are people with uh, stories, individual stories. There are parents, there are brothers, sisters, wives, husbands who have loved ones. And we have to give these people a face in order to be able uh, to um, do something about them. So yes, I'm trying to do as much as I can, but you know, I'm one person, and I'm sure there are many Palestinians and Israelis and Chinese and Russians who can join us, and if anyone wants to get in touch with me, they can do it via Twitter, Facebook, email, and we can see what we can do. And we can do the dot, we'll do the, yeah. uh, e uh, the address again um, at the end. Go on here, look here. Hi, um, my name is Zuhair Mazuz. I'm a student here at the Kennedy School. I'm also a Moroccan journalist, and uh, uh, as someone who's practiced journalism for about two years now in the Middle East, I can see that there are mainly two obstacles to um, free speech where we come from. Uh, one of them is the insistence of regimes to repress journalists and, and uh, their right to free speech, but the other one is popular attitudes towards what uh, liberal or mm, you know, open-minded journalists would say about societies. I'm wondering if it's the case for Iran, do you think Iranian uh, public opinion is open, regardless of what regime is in place. Do you think it is open to uh, um, journalistic work that is challenging to the, you know, public morals as they as they call them? Um, because I know for a fact that in the Arab world, it's one of the obstacles. It's not just the regimes, but it's popular attitudes as well. Yeah, I don't think that we can really generalize and say that public opinion is like that. Yes, there are members of public who may be bigoted and ignorant and uh, prejudiced and think the way that uh, you're describing them. But in general, in my experience, people, uh, especially again with the advent of digital technology, satellite technology, they would like to know more about the rest of the world. And so they are more open to receiving information so yes, many Iranians may not uh, want to hear about gay rights in America and 
you know, because homosexuality is not something that discussed openly in the Iranian society, but more and more Iranians, more and more Middle Easterns, uh, I've traveled uh, in different Middle Eastern countries, I can see that more and more people are open to new ideas, new information. And there's a, I think, especially with the advent of uh, social media, there's a new mood in the Middle East. I mean, we saw that in the, uh, during the Arab Spring, people naming their children Facebook, for example, in Egypt. That's a <laughs> sign of, you know, <laughs> change, yes. That's <laughs> <Indeed>. questionable. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They, they should have called him Mark, yeah. maybe, yes. <laughs> Hi, uh, my name is Sina Khoisokhan. I'm a student at Boston University. So, uh, so back in Iran, we have had moderate presidents, even reformists, as well as hardliners. But not much has changed about this, uh, you know, freedom of, freedom of speech and journalism in particular. So do you think presidents as the main elected guys in the government have any impact on this situation or not? Actually, I argue uh, that a lot has changed. If we think about uh, the situation in Iran and now with 1990s and 1980s, we can see that there's more freedom in Iran, and you know, compared to that period. Yes, Iran is not like Sweden, of course, still. Uh, but uh, it is freer and people have more space to uh, discuss things than in the 1980s at the height of Khomeini's dictatorship, when Mousavi was prim prime minister, and in the 1990s. So I think uh, people believe in gradual change, maybe excruciatingly gradual change, because that is the only way to be able to have sustainable change. And as we discussed it before, people look at the sudden changes in the neighborhood, the situation in Iraq, in Libya, and those are not changes that are sustainable. A change that happened in Iraq has resulted in more uh, fanaticism, like ISIS, for example. So I think President in Iran is a symbolic figure, but when, whereas in 2005 you had Ahmadinejad, a bigoted fundamentalist, as the president of Iran, in 2013 you had uh, Rouhani, who is a little bit more liberal, a little bit more cultivated than Ahmadinejad. At least he's not Ahmadinejad, and people are happy with that. So he's the symbol of change. Maybe he doesn't, he cannot bring that much change to the country, but he's a symbol of change. Take a look here next, but I wanna ask Tim, because the question was asked, were you changed, do you have more sympathy for uh, those who are tossed into prison and sort of lost? Um, we, you talked a little bit about, well, we thought it was safe and we went over, but and you'd read about you know, the darker parts uh, of the world, but this is the first sort of up close, you've met somebody that was in deep trouble and had no, no way to fix that in, in some ways. Does it change you as a world viewer? I, you know, I get yeah. you're in comedy, I totally understand it, but as a person, did it change you? Yes, it did. It made me, uh, it, yeah, it made me realize that we're much closer to, I'll, I'll tell you one thing. Um, what I was gonna say is that we're much closer to some of these darker elements than I was aware. I did not, to some degree, I didn't believe it. I just didn't believe in it. It just wasn't a part of my world. And then to see it directly and interact directly was quite a shock. Even reading his book, I'm, I'm, I'm reading the book, I'm now in, you know, in the character of going along with him in his story, and you know, at a page 130, he brings up this Daily Show thing. And even reading the book, I had forgotten it had anything to do with it, because it's a great book, and I'm involved in the story, and he's in prison, and suddenly the Daily Show thing happens. I'm like, <laughs> whoa, I have something to do with this story? It was pretty shocking to realize that we're not so separate from that. Um, but there is one other thing, which is, uh, even, even at the time we were there, which was uh, things were more liberal than they are now, and things were opening up, it's still, and I've been to a lot of places, but it's still, I had, there was an, something in the air that felt like it wasn't free. There was a certain kind of, a certain heaviness about things that I had never really experienced before. And it was interesting because we had, not too long before come out, come out of you know, many years under George Bush where freedom, particularly post 
was tossed around as this word that became meaningless to me. To me, it almost became like something, the way they would use it was worthy of mocking. Like it became, you know, the terrorists hate us for our freedoms. We're fighting for freedom. All of these things that, to me, became empty words. But when I was there, I got a little bit of a sense of like, oh, it's not nearly as empty as I thought. And it's only once you see the absence of freedom that you get a sense of what we, what, what we do have here. So that opened my eyes. You know, and I was not young when I was there, but as, as a middle-aged man, it opened my eyes to something that I never, you know, that I just didn't realize existed like that. So. My name is Danielle Feinstein. I'm a student here at the Kennedy School in the uh, public policy program. Um, my question is for both Tim and Maziar. Um, the Daily Show gets involved somehow in, in issues that end up becoming advocacy issues in the US, but now especially with advocating for Maziar when he was in prison, but also in the case of Bassem Youssef when his show um, ended in Egypt. What is the perspective of the show when it gets kind of taken from the comedy role into this advocacy role, and how comfortable is that for, for you in that, in that position? Um, and maybe you each can answer from, from both sides of that. Uh, well, there's a few answers to that. You know, I, I don't want to speak for John, but I will say that you know, it, both in Maziar's case, uh, you know, that, that he had a personal I involvement. Um, and so I think that that changes things a little bit. Like even if you go to like the Zadroga bill about the 9-11 responders, um, it, it was something that he had a personal connection to. Uh, so I think that changes a little bit. And even, even what I do, like I run the field departments where the correspondents go out in the field, those segments. When there's something that you feel uh, very, something specific about the person involved, whether that's for or against, you, you tend to get, you know, you, you're just going off of what you actually feel. Um, and so you might get a little more active that way. Um, but generally, that's not our job. Generally, our job is to make comedy satirically, which is generally commenting on things. It is sometimes, though, that you can't sit there and say, well, I'm just going to make a joke about this. Sometimes you want to do something, you know, and usually it's in the form of jokes. But Mazier, do you think you would have been imprisoned had you not appeared on The Daily Show? Oh, yeah, I mean, that was just... Uh, <laughs> you know, I just wanted to see if he blamed you. No, 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 it would be... <laughs> no, I mean, it would... No it, hard it feelings, was just, okay. No, 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 you know, it was just one, uh, one ridiculous evidence among all the ridiculous there were, You talked about how many journalists yeah. there were there, right? <laughs> and there were a lot of high-profile yeah. journalists sure. there, as you yourself are. So there was something that made you and perhaps it's your Iranian uh, exactly, background. Exactly, yes, that, that, um, was the exact, that was the reason that I got arrested. The reason for my arrest was exactly what we were talking about before, that they wanted to make an example of me. Because I was a journalist and I was making documentary films, I was working with foreign media, so they thought that I would be the best target for them because they could teach a lesson to a big number of people. And at the same time, Iran does not recognize uh, dual citizenship. So in the eyes of the Iranian government, I was not an Iranian Canadian, I was Iranian. So they could easily arrest me, put me in prison, put me on trial, and teach a lesson to the other journalists. So, but the Daily Show was just one of uh, many, many ridiculous evidence that they brought forward. I will say that one segment we did, everybody in it was arrested. Yeah. <laughs> okay. But that, uh, that actually happened before we even aired it. I, I think partially it was that um, the people who were willing to speak to us tended to be from a more liberal on the political spectrum, and so those were the people that they I think the way maybe I met Tim and Jason was also a little bit dodgy in terms of uh, what uh, the eyes of, the suspicious eyes of an Iranian intelligence agent. The, I was doing a, a documentary for BBC at that time, and I was with the correspondent in, uh, in a hotel room. And I was get, uh, because there were lots of media uh, organizations in Tehran, they were calling me for interviews, and I, was, I did not have time because I was doing my own documentary. And we had a very tight deadline for the BBC. So when Tim called, I just said yes to The Daily Show because I was a fan of The Daily Show. And when uh, Tim and Jason came to the hotel to meet me, 
I had a very short time, maybe five or six minutes, so we had a quick coffee, and I just gave them a bunch of names. You can meet this person, he speaks English, the rapper, you met this foreign, you know, a foreign secretary. <laughs> so they, I mean, if you are an ignorant, if you uh, look at the world through this intellig uh, prism of suspicion and intelligence, you think that this guy is a spy. What does a spy do? As my interrogator said, he said that journalists are all spies because they're like spies. They gather information and they disseminate <laughs> information and they get paid for it. So that's a spy. So for him, it was, uh, I was being a spy and I, unbeknownst to all of us, uh, we were being monitored. Yeah, and I remember if you saw that, that meeting, it was five or six minutes in a hotel it looks kind of suspicious. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I could have heard what we were talking about. Yeah. <laughs> you guys don't know about phones. Right. <laughs> um, I'm, nobody else stand up, because I'm going to try really quickly, because we're running out of time here. So go ahead. Hi, my name is Sherry Hakimi, and I'm an alum of the Kennedy School. This question is actually for both of you, but mainly Tim. You mentioned that you run the field pieces um, area of The Daily Show. And now that things are sort of changing in Iran, and we're seeing you know, we have a former president, and things are a bit more open. Is The Daily Show ever interested in going back? And, and or is it going <laughs> to do anything? Is it going to continue, um, I, I guess, advocating for uh, you know, better relationship or understanding between Iran and the US? Uh, well, for, first of all, The Daily Show is going through its own regime change right now. So <laughs> um, I think we'll find out what the new voice of, what new voice of the show is as Trevor Noah takes over. Um, I don't feel comfortable going back to Iran. Uh, would I send somebody back there? Uh, not at the moment. Um, it would, I think things would have to change a lot. And even then, I guarantee that the Viacom lawyers would not let us do that. <laughs> they made that mistake once. But in terms of um, uh, advocating, I, certainly I do think so. And uh, I, think that, I think we'll always have a little bit of a connection there, unlike other places. And I think that... Um, not a responsibility, but I, I do think that it's of special interest to us as an institution, and I think that'll remain. And, and obviously, it's one of the main, you know, in the, in the cab over, somebody asked me, what do you think of the Iran deal? He didn't even know necessarily what we were talking about. Uh, so I think that's, that's on a lot of people's minds. Yeah. And speaking of advocacy, when I was with John in Jordan while uh, we were filming the Premier Rosewater, because of his uh, defense of Bassem Yusuf, and because Bassem is a very popular figure in the Arab world, John had become a very popular figure as well. And he was surprised by the fact that everyone in the streets of Jordan knew him. Everyone knew who he was. And as soon as they would uh, see John, they would say, Bassem, Bassem, John Stewart, number one, number one. <laughs> I love you. <laughs> yeah, so. Hi, my name is Allison Toledo. I'm a freshman at Harvard College. And uh, so during um, the Ar Arab Spring in 2011, Iran uh, experienced a few short-lived protests. Um, so um, I was wondering if you were at all involved in covering those protests and what your thoughts were on those protests and their implications um, after your experiences in 2009. In Iran, there were protests yeah, there in were 2011? Yeah. Maybe they were small, small, ones. small, very, very yeah, very small, small protests, yeah. yes. What really, I mean, I don't remember those protests, and I'm not sure what I was doing at that time. Um, no, I did not cover it that much. But what really, really scared me were the protests in the beginning of February 2010, which became really violent, because the protests became violent, and the regime really managed to uh, just suppress the protests quickly. And I think that was really dangerous because the success of the Green Movement was its peacefulness. The regime, uh, or the Revolutionary Guard, the uh, part of the regime really tried to militarize the Green Movement. And I think with the wisdom of, collective wisdom of Iranian people, it did not become a really violent movement. Otherwise, for the regime, it was very easy to suppress because they know they're violent, they know how to suppress violence. So, one protest, especially in uh, February 2010, was uh, quite violent and the regime managed to suppress it. And we have not seen that many protests, manifestations of people's dissatisfaction with the government since then that much. Although people come out at 
every occasion they can. You know, it can be a football game, can be the uh, nuclear deal. They come to the streets and they chant Musavi's name still, even though he's under house arrest. They uh, chant um, for freedom and yes, democracy. Hi there, uh, Sarah Golkar. I'm a second year student at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy. My question is this, I think the nuclear agreement has raised the sort of question of whether or not there will be a broader rapprochement between the US and Iran. Given what you know about Iran and your time spent there, um, what do you think about improving US-Iran relations after the nuclear deal? I think if uh, there is no interruption, I think if uh, the process goes ahead as it has started uh, since a couple of years ago with the election of Rouhani, there will be some sort of rapprochement, and it is not going to come to fruition until Khamenei, the current supreme leader, is alive because his reason, he's made uh, being anti-American part of his raison d'etre. And <clears throat> so, but we will see uh, some sort of rapprochement between Iran and the US. I don't think that the United States embassy will be open anytime soon in Iran. But there will be some sort of economic deals, maybe uh, some uh, members of American government go to Iran. And I th it's, it will be good for Iran to have that kind of rapprochement. And we've seen it in other countries as well, when they have opened up to the US. There is some respect for the human rights. There is some respect for freedom of expression. Thank you. Because you've been so patient. Please be quick. All right, hi, uh, my name is Frankie Hill. I am a freshman at Harvard College, and I have absolutely no idea what I want to do with the rest of my life. And so I wanted to ask, uh, well, I guess for any of you who would like to answer, what is the most fulfilling part of your guys' job? That's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> a very nice last question, yeah. because usually the last question is that, so what do you think about the future of Iran? It's like, okay, how many hours do we have to talk about that? Yeah. Uh, it's nice to earn a living, I'll tell you that. <laughs> um, it is, don't, don't discount that, no matter what you do. It's nice to support yourself and your family. Uh, I think, at least for what I do, it's nice to have fun, yet to feel like you are, if not making a difference in the world, you're at least looking at things that matter. Um, you know, uh, sometimes I feel like we could do more of that, but to feel like uh, there are things that you care about in the world, and if you are somehow involved in that some way, whether it's us commenting on it or more directly, um, I think there really is something about feeling like you are involved with something that you care about uh, in the world. To me, that's very fulfilling. To me, it's meeting new people and learning every day something new. And, and by nature, I'm a very nosy person. So if I had any other profession, I could not go to someone and ask them about their opinion about something. You know, if I were a dentist or an accountant, I could go, go to people and say, so what do you think about uh, presidential election? But as a journalist, you can easily do that, and people you know, think it's good. So, and yes, making a living is very important as well, yes. And I think that is part of it, that you can make a living. It's, and for if you decide to become a journalist, it's becoming much more difficult to earn a living from journalism, yeah. That's for sure. I agree with the making money part, and I would just say I, I also agree. Um, to be able to meet people that you wouldn't ordinarily meet, yeah. to hear their stories in this forum or on TV or just when you're standing around at an event and learn their stories is, is, is not just great fun, it's really, it really is a privilege, it really is. So uh, find something that just really floats your boat. You're gonna be doing it for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> So, look, the name of uh, the book is Rosewater. It will tell you the complete story. Obviously, he got out, so we know the <laughs> ending. Uh, Mazir Bahari, who wrote this, originally called Then They Came For Me. So you hear a little bit about his background as well. It, it is a great, it is a page turner, even though you know how it turned out. The film, directed by Rosewater.
Um, thank you so much for, well, thank for you. being Thanks here. Very much. And Tim Greenberg, Daily Show, who doesn't watch the Daily Show? You don't need, need me to one. plug it. Watch um, the Trevor Noah version. <laughs> Tell your friends, especially the kids. Out there. Right. So thank you both well, for being thank here. Thank you so and much. And if story. you want to learn more about journalism is not a crime, go to journalismisnotacrime.com and you will learn much more about what we're doing and our other activities. And what you can do, journalismisnotacrime.com. Thank you all so Thank much. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thank you. Great. Thanks a lot. Yeah.